My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Nearly one in five women and one in 71 men report being raped, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And one in 20 adults, that's men and women, experience other types of sexual trauma at some point. But those numbers are probably low, considering how often such things go unreported. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. And as you all know, I love to have a lot of fun around here. But we can't cultivate sexual empowerment and celebrate our sexuality and all it has to offer if we don't address some really serious, even life-threatening issues. And I'm always honored when we have that opportunity. I was so thrilled when today's first guest uh, reached out to me. Uh, He suggested a show on sexual trauma, which um, he's an expert in. He works uh, primarily with men who have experienced sexual trauma. And as he pointed out, it's something that is really underexplored. And like all abuse, It affects partners and their loved ones, you know, aside from their partners in many, many ways. Uh, While we we will be covering some more sexual trauma issues uh, specific to women uh, later in today's show and in future episodes. But we are going to start with uh, how sexual trauma affects men and their relationships. And before I bring on our fabulous guest and introduce him to y'all, I want you to listen to this short clip from The Oprah Winfrey Show. Uh, It's Tyler Perry in a very bold and public admittance of his own struggles with sexual trauma that I was really moved by. And it kind of shows the power of what these discussions uh, can have. Well, many of you know Tyler Perry from his blockbuster movies and hit TV shows. Tyler knows exactly how these men, all of you, are feeling and many of you who are watching today because just a few weeks ago he shared his own story of childhood abuse. Take a brief look, will you? How would you describe your childhood? Uh, uh, For me, a living hell. You know, I was able to... Somewhere along the way, my saving grace was I I learned how to leave myself. I remember my mother and my aunt taking me to the park. Look at your cute self there. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard for me to look at that. uh... Okay. Uh, It's hard for me to look at those pictures because I feel like I died as a child. In addition to being regularly beaten by his father, Tyler says he was sexually abused, starting at five years old by a man across the street. I'm building a birdhouse and, you know, he had his hands in my pants. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there and I'm I'm thinking, what is this? And I felt my body betraying me because Uh I felt, it's odd because I felt an erection at that age. At that age. That's all I remember about him and the next person I remember was a nurse in the hospital. I had been rushed to the emergency room from school for something, and a male nurse comes in, and he was doing the same thing that that this man was doing. Mm -hmm. And again, I left myself. Mm -hmm. And then there was the person, the man in the church, who, um, you know, used God Mm. and the Bible against me, you Mm -hmm. know, to say, to justify a lot of the things that were going on. It was so... Horrible, and that was the first time my first sexual experience was with this man performing oral sex on me as a boy. 
Tyler also talked about being raped by a friend's mother when he was just 10 years old. So um, how have you felt since that interview, releasing that in such a worldwide way? I feel lighter. Really? I feel lighter as if, as if I took the weight of the world off my shoulders. And I'm hoping that in talking about it, that it's helping a lot of other men to be free because there are so many of us who don't say anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I feel really, I feel a lot lighter. And one of the things you and I have talked about and also talked about uh, on, briefly on that show is that it's so difficult for men to talk about this, period. Yeah. So isn't it phenomenal that we have 200 yeah. men here? I think they all should be applauded. This is really, really Let's awesome. applaud yourself. Powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, it's just such a great example of what can happen when you bring a voice to this topic. We have another very important voice, an expert in the in the topic of sexual trauma in men here today. Andrew Ross Long is a writer, speaker, and coach in the Bay Area who runs a nonprofit organization aimed at ending domestic violence and sexual assault. I'm so honored to have you here today, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Uh, I would love to start by just simply asking you... How common, do we even know how common is sexual trauma in men? I don't think we really know, August. Uh, this is, again, um, an underreported, under-discussed issue for men. We have a culture of shame uh, around any kind of sexual wounding in men. Um, similar to the culture of shame around women, women have been, you know, there have been some decades of effort to bring that out in women. Um, and, you know, I'm not interested in making comparisons or saying who has it worse. But I do know that both genders are deeply, deeply wounded. Absolutely. And I, I agree. I feel that there's so much more shame, even around a, a man expressing himself emotionally about something that's not necessarily uh, damage. You know, it's, it's a culture that we have that can be a little bit or a lot in, inhibiting in that way. Uh, so how might it, because of that fact that it, there's so much extra shame, how does sexual trauma affect men perhaps differently in general? I know every case is different, but versus a woman who maybe has a slight bit more support. I think what's happening is a lot of men turn it inwards and they create what, what I call a dragon state, which is first there's the shame of the original wounding. And then because it maybe it leads to performance problems or it leads to sexual anxiety or it leads to problems in their relationships with intimacy, they turn that against themselves and there's a secondary state of I'm so angry at myself because I have these problems in relationships. Sure. So it gets it kind of layers on top of each other and compounds over the years. And if there's no outlet for it, if they don't get help, if they don't do their work, if they don't go into therapy or find some kind of healing, um, you know, it can get really, really bad. Yeah, I can only imagine anything that festers grows. Right. And I'm sure it's so lonely, you know, to, to feel that because you really, truly are struggling with something all on your own. Uh, so, of course, a lot of these men uh, either end up in relationships or maybe have a hard time cultivating relationships. Or perhaps I know that uh, with women I've talked to uh, and a family member who, who experienced sexual abuse, a lot of times uh, relationships themselves will trigger, you know, uh, different kinds of uh, memories and things like that. Uh, what are some of those challenges that, that you hear about most frequently and uh, how it kind of affects the, the relationship as a whole? Well, this is a great opportunity actually for men and women to find healing in the relationship. And this is one of the reasons that I encourage guys to get into relationships. I do a lot of work with guys, you know, coaching them to stick it out in relationships, sometimes when they just want to run. Um, a relationship is a crucible. It's like a cauldron for all your stuff to come up for both men and women. And 
it is, in my experience, it's been a fertile field for uh, opportunities to do the work, to figure out what's going on. So this is something I want to say to all the women listening, is if your man is having any kind of challenges or problems with intimacy or in the bedroom, it's a great opportunity. You know, don't let, just don't let it go unaddressed. Don't let him just brush it off. In a kind and compassionate way, see if you can bring it up. It's a wonderful window of opportunity. Don't waste it. And the same for guys that may be listening. Um, if you have issues or you feel like there's restrictions on your, on your intimacy, see it as an opportunity. Try to figure out what's going on. What is the pattern? What is the common denominator in your past relationships that maybe is a clue to, you know, some healing for you. Interesting. So it becomes a catalyst for positive change and growth for, for both individuals and the couple, which can be a really powerful thing. Uh, do you feel like, um, you know, you, you mentioned bringing it up in a kind and gentle, compassionate way. Are there certain ways to to do so? I imagine they may be resistant at first and, and maybe say they don't want to talk about it and maybe they have mixed feelings about that. Totally. So how does one do that? If do, When do you know to keep... I don't want to say pushing, encouraging. Right. How, how do you know when to either stop or, or try a different technique? Or? You know, I think you're, you, you know your sweetie best. So you're going to have the best gauge in that relationship of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Be gentle, be compassionate. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, one of my favorite writers, a I Buddhist monk. Yeah. I know. He has this, he has some great um, lines. Actually, he was interviewed by Oprah and he gives her some great lines. If you want to go on YouTube and, and look at Thich Nhat Hanh being interviewed by Oprah, he has some great lines, format that I use all the time, which is, you know, my dearest, I'm here for you. I can see that you're in pain, and that's why I'm here for you. And just opening that space. That gave me chills. Yeah, it's yeah. really powerful. It's just opening that that's space. That's all love. Yeah. It's pure love. Yeah. And I noticed that it's not pressing for any particular detail. Uh, should a woman or ask, should a, should a man feel that they should share everything? You know, h- how does that kind of work within the conversation? One of the interesting things that I've discovered about sexual trauma is that it almost doesn't matter what happened sometimes. If you have memories, great. If you don't have memories, you know, the science says you don't necessarily need to go searching for them. And your brain might be protecting you. Your brain might be protecting you. Or you may create things that didn't happen. That's something we've seen with hypnotherapy. So what's most important is your functioning. What is your relationship like? Are you both uh, increasing the degrees of freedom you have in expressing love? in expressing intimacy, in going deeper in intimacy. And as long as that's happening and you're going down that path, that's great. But if you hit a block, that's the opportunity where you can start investigating that block and just gently probing it, um, you know, increasing the comfort, increasing the trust, increasing the connection, increasing the communication until that block sort of irons itself out. And I imagine that so many other facets of a person's life can improve. Uh, How does the healing process, which I'd love for you to explore as well, but how does healing... Uh, what do you see? What are some of the the positive outcomes that you've seen from people who go through this process? Yeah, a big one is actually money and prosperity. Oh, interesting. So if you've heard of the chakra system, you know, that's an energetic system, Eastern uh, system of energy. And the, in that system, the root chakra, the second chakra, which is the sexual chakra, the sexual function, creative function chakra, is also connected to abundance and material wealth. So there's actually a pair of sexual healers, I think, in Northern California that do sexual healing, and it's very much related to blocks around prosperity and money. And they do it specifically with women, so it's you know, not for men, it's just for women. But um, it's, it's a really interesting connection. Um, sometimes, because we're limited in the amount of pleasure we can hold, 
that's the same limit that comes in terms of the amount of prosperity or wealth that we can hold. Ah, and you know, I imagine too that our attitudes about our self-value, yes. which seems so tightly linked to our, you know, willingness willingness to be open to uh, our profitable, you know, our income, our, our, or going after our career of our dreams or, you know, not having a ceiling above our heads, that kind of thing. Um, what is the sexual healing? I know it's very different for each person, but from a sexual healing standpoint, what are some of the uh, kind of steps or mechanisms that, that you use to help men heal? Well, the first thing is just raising awareness. Um, I mean, and most men coming into this are at a pretty low level of awareness and consciousness. So just getting them to talk about sex, getting them to talk about their hangups, issues, repeated patterns they're encountering in relationships is the first step. And eventually in that conversation, a man will eventually be able to say, hey, I think I have a problem and I want this to be better. And that desire to have better and go past, you know, the limits of their past relationships is very strong. That's the healing instinct. We all have it. And from there, it's just figuring out, you know, what's the modality? What is it? Is there a physiological practice they need to go through? Um, do they need to, you know, get more comfortable with self-love? A lot of guys, very low on self-love, a lot, you know, very uh, self-punishing, driving themselves all the time. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of just encouraging healthy sensuality, self-love, getting them into that space of accepting and being able to hold more and more pleasure for themselves sure. um, and it's you know from there it's it's pretty individual but yeah which is something we can all benefit from probably Correct. especially in our culture where sex is still pretty taboo so there's all these different factors kind of working against that open conversation yes for sure uh, so let's say a woman or a man who has a partner who's a man and who is perhaps demonstrating some different symptoms or signs that maybe they need to have some conversations and do this kind of work. What are some of the common ways or symptoms that, that signs that kind of could be red flags to say, okay, this is a sign of potential sexual trauma? Yeah, the most common ones are in a relationship um, declining interest in sex when the guy just sort of goes cold. And I read about this and hear about this a lot in relationships is, you know, the spark has died, which, you know, it happens so frequently people think, oh, this is just what happens. The spark dies. We lose sexual attraction to each other. But it doesn't have to be natural, that way. Yeah. It's not at all natural. Um, impotence, frigidity, rigidity in the bedroom. Um, guys who sort of go into trance and go internal, you don't feel a strong sense of connection with them while having sex. Okay. That's another symptom. Um, any kind of sexual performance issues or anxiety can be a symptom. Sure. Um, and, you know... Basically, anything that restricts how free and open and deep the intimacy is. Okay, interesting. And you've mentioned uh, kind of a detox uh, program where you sort of, uh, you know, cut yourself off from anything sexual for for a month or so, uh, which I talked a little bit about with Gabe Deem, who is here. He's a counselor who works with uh, men who are addicted to porn, which is a separate issue. But I could see that there perhaps could be some crossover do you see that? Yeah, there's a lot of crossover. And that was actually the first, you know, the first program I created was a 30-day program for guys to just detox from porn. Um, porn or pornographied imagery is omnipresent in our society. And it trains men into this extremely limited, superficial view of sexuality, like I was saying, where they go into that trance and they're not really even connected to their own bodies and to their own sensation. They're projecting into a fantasy. You know, they're mentally traveling. They're not present in the moment. 
So that's really one thing that's important is clear the decks, get rid of all stimulation, you know, masturbation, pornography, orgasm, take it all out for 30 days. That also resets the neurochemicals. It resets your physiology. It changes your hormone expression. I mean, it resets everything. It's like rebooting a computer. Most men these days are operating as if, you know, they were on the Windows 98 operating system and it had been running for 10 years. <laughs> gotcha. You know, like it's yeah. no, you've never cleared out all that gunk. And that's a you know metaphor I use. Cause sure. No, that, that really works. I, I, can, I can see that. And would they then, are there certain things I should replace that with? I know obviously it's just moving the energy to something else, but uh, what do people do instead? Yeah. So after 30 days, a great practice is self-pleasure with no stimulation, with no external, you know, imagery or, you know, porno- obviously no pornography, right. but just reconnecting to what makes my body feel good? You know, this is probably similar to things you've discussed with women in the Absolutely. past. Absolutely. Know your body first. Yeah. And then it's a gift that you have within you and right. then that you can share if you want to with a, with a partner, partners. Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, effectiveness of that program, do you feel like that is also something that somebody who's been through sexual trauma would benefit from? Or is it more about uh, just changing the way that they approach intimacy immediately? I think it can benefit those who've who've been through some sexual trauma. Um, everyone needs something a little bit different, but I think it's that's sort of my basic square one is let's get you back to baseline because most people aren't even aware of what their baseline is. You know, uh, any of us who, I mean, if you have an orgasm every two days or every day, you're constantly hitting the reset switch on your neurochemistry. So how do you even know what your baseline is? How do you know what your baseline level of uh, desire for sex is? It's like giving up caffeine. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I had this, uh, I I have a nutritional background and I had a a client who, um, was on something like 8,000 milligrams of caffeine a day, which is Wow. I mean, most people that I mean that could put you into shock. It's yeah. a huge amount of caffeine, and he said he didn't feel anything from it. And he, we gradually tapered him off, and it turned out he was so, he was ultra sensitive to any caffeine, and it changed. You know, it just his whole body had been reset. I could see that kind of giving you this fresh, like you said. How do you know? You know, how do you know where that where that point is? Um, where can people go? I imagine because they're fewer men talk about this kind of thing. Perhaps there might be fewer resources. Obviously, you and your website, um, fiercegentleman.com, is a great place to go. Uh, where can people turn for, for additional support? Yeah, specifically for the rebooting and you know clearing out the neurochemistry, I really recommend Your Brain on Porn, which I know has been, I th- think was mentioned when you were talking yeah, about Yeah, it's a Dean. great, great website. Uh, also, you know, find the TEDx talk on... Um, your brain on porn. That's a, there's a, a TEDx talk on that. Yeah, it's a TEDx. It's, I can't believe I missed it. I'm obsessed with those things. It's by one of the actually creators of um, the, the Your Brain on Porn website. Oh, cool. Um, and actually, a really interesting connection is he is married, I believe, in partnership with Marnia Robinson, who wrote Cupid's Poisoned Arrow. I don't know if you've seen that. I've, I've heard of it. If not, you should definitely look I'll into it. Out. You should have her on the show. She's amazing. Awesome. But, um, you know, that's a great, your brain on porn, it's just kind of a clearing house for website on what orgasm does to the neurochemistry of the brain. And they also go into, a uh, related website is reuniting.info. And that website is more geared toward the uh, relational connection and how orgasm affects neurochemistry and attachment in relationships, which is another fascinating thread, probably an entirely different show. Sure. Oh, there's so many uh, kind of 
tangents that we could go on, right. and it's wonderful. Maybe I, we need to have you back in again. And I'd love to have a panel discussion even with you and Gabe Deem and a few other people. It would be yeah. pretty exciting. Um, before I let you go so quickly, I would love to hear just any, any last uh, encouraging words that you have. Uh, I think one thing that is really challenging for people when they're struggling with any kind of trauma, addiction, abuse, recovery is hope and not necessarily believing that they can get through it. Do people move past this? Absolutely. And what are those rewards? What can you tell us about what that's like? Uh, Relational depth and intimacy that you've never experienced that you didn't even know was possible. Um, The financial rewards, of course, you mentioned. Sure. I mean, just getting your mind right with the world of prosperity, connecting to feeling like you have a a more solid place in the world, more security, Um, and, and just a, you know... There are really depths of intimacy and relationships that you can go to that are out of this world and absolutely amazing and absolutely worth it. So I know a lot of guys want to give up on relationships or they want to give up on sex. I've talked to a lot of guys. I was this guy at one point who's like, I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. Yeah. Because it's so painful, so difficult sure, at times. Sure, of course, of course. But uh, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about making that decision to rethink that decision yeah. uh, and give it another shot because it really is worth it if you're willing to do some work. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Our next guest is a dear friend of mine who also happens to be a spectacular writer. She uses her personal experience and talents to share messages of hope and healing from really dark places and situations for women who've endured endured relationship violence. Uh, A 2001 Clemson University graduate and 2010 MBA graduate of UCLA Anderson, Elle has a day job in technology business development, but hopes to find success in the literary world, which she's quickly getting, by the way, her book is fabulous, and call attention to what she considers to be a growing and insidious problem among teens and young adults, and that is dating abuse. Her first novel, The Fall, was published by Truth Love Publications in 2012 and explores the very sensitive topic of dating abuse. As a student, Elle became a member of Kappa Kappa Gamma Sorority and Delta Sigma Pi Business Fraternity and was inspired to look at her own role as a community member through these organizations. She continues to be an active member of her community as a reading tutor and CART member, and she's also doing some really exciting university outreach, which I'm going to ask her about. She lives in the beautiful area of Santa Monica on the Beach and is working diligently on her second novel. Thank you so much for joining me, Elle. Oh, well, thank you. That was such a lovely introduction. I should just bring you with me. Oh, gosh. And, uh, I would love that. You're every conversation with. prefaced with something we like that. We could go on tour. Girl Boner Radio and Elle the Author. Oh, that sound, that's someone make a note of that. I know, right? My, my coordinator's on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we've been talking a lot about uh, sexual trauma Largely in men earlier in the show, but we also talked a bit about how it affects the whole relationship, and so much of it is universal, you know, mm-hmm. affects humans in similar ways. Um, but I know that you, which I really admire, endured your own abuse experience, mm-hmm. came out of it stronger, and went so far as to share it, uh, but in a fi- totally fictionalized way. Like, your book is complete fiction, uh, but the heart of it comes from real experience, which is, I think, why it's so powerful. Could you just share... Just briefly, what did you go through? Sure. Yeah, no, it's um, it's very interesting. And I think, you know, at, at 
the top of what you just said, you said something very critical, which is this this is not just a, um, a young problem, a female problem, a specific demographic problem. Um, abuse, it involves everybody. Everybody is affected. It's a family problem. It's, it's male, female. It's, it's a human problem. And so I, I think I've, I've seen some really great strides being made um, with different organizations to to get that out. And it's uh, you know, unfortunately topical. I, I hate that any situation makes something like that topical, but it is not just because October is, you know, um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but we've seen a lot of the, you know, NFL's been mired in, in issues lately that's really put it at the forefront of everyone's mind. Um, me personally, um, I, I definitely did go through an abusive situation uh, when I was younger, and it, it started. Um, you know, before I really knew, I think, uh, how the ramifications of a relationship like that could affect me so long term. Um, and of course it did. And it, it took several, several years to, you know, number one, recognize it. Number two, extricate myself from it. Number three, begin to heal. And then number four, take that extra step of how do I take something that was, was traumatic and then do something good with it because that's, um, that's really when I reached a point when I realized, uh, you know, I do believe there's a, a reason that everything happens and it, it gave me a sense of purpose, but, but it's a, it's a strange internal journey. Right. Um, so, you know, for me, it, it started when I was very young. It was a relationship that was physically abusive. Um, I, I can't even say it was really verbally. It, it would actually come on so suddenly. Um, but uh, but for me, I very much wanted to keep up airs being from the South. That's important. Being confident. I, I really never had a problem with confidence. I did well in school. And, and I think even for myself, it was hard years later when I was still struggling with this. I keep going back. I keep going back. Um, and it eats at you. And, and it, it really did for a while devolve me. Um, so slowly I didn't recognize it. And, and the past several years have been um, going through the process of, of recognizing that having happened and then rebuilding and finding my, my center and myself. But the reason I was able to then write this story is you're right. It's, it's fiction. But you do you write what you know. And I realized when I was trying to get help myself um, it's there's not a lot of people who go through something so traumatic that are comfortable than talking about it and certainly not putting something out there and actively promoting uh, something that is so close closely tethered to their own demons. And I realized that, you know, why did I make that choice every time I couldn't answer that? I wrote the book to answer that for myself and then I published it to help other people have that conversation, to clue in not just women who are going through it, but also those who love them and who don't know how to help. Um, those who have seen it and, and aren't quite sure what's happening, why you know, why would somebody be vulnerable that doesn't seem that way? So, you know, I, it was a question that I thought um, on a large scale, I could not be the only one that didn't have the answer to why choose the hell of abuse. So that that was my personal journey from my my relationship into, um, you know, utilizing this as a platform to to hopefully launch this uh, this longstanding writing career. Absolutely. It's so admirable. And I love that you brought up the denial factor because I think so many people, I don't know if they think, well, if something traumatic happened to me and if I was traumatized, then I would know about it. Right. You know? And it's not that you don't know, but part of it, part of trauma and part of abuse and control over another human being. Right. 
is that, you know, mm-hmm. that is a very insidious strategic plot that they are trying to control you and they're trying to convince you that you need them and they're trying to convince you of all these things. So it's it's an absolutely normal thing to not fully understand it or to recognize when it's happening. And I think a lot of uh, people beat themselves up over it, you know, oh, the victim sure. guilt, which is not a good thing. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's funny because, uh, well, not funny, haha, but I- ironic, I think that um, even myself considered to an extent well, somebody would only be continuously traumatized sexually and and uh, physically if there were, you know, key components missing in their life, father issues, um, indigence that didn't allow help. I mean, you kind of, I think it's sort of a natural reaction to, number one, want to separate yourself from feeling vulnerable to that. So you kind of set up these ideas in your mind of, well, there's a specific demographic and it's probably not one that I'm in. Um But I recognize that a lot of times it's the softest, sometimes the most intelligent, the the most empathetic people that do find themselves in these situations. And I think it comes from a place of thinking you're strong enough to change somebody or at the very least change the situation. And then by extension, that person will see the light Um, and, and that you can grow. It'll bring you closer together. You can romanticize abuse and it's. It's a strange thing to say, but I think anyone that ponders on that mm-hmm. for a while, I mean, the, who doesn't like the bad boy? There's a, a, right. an entire industry out yeah. there of, of books that have been written about the bad boy turning good through love, you know? Right. It's an, it's an interesting kind of like the, the fairy tale princess, but a little darker. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it was strange because for me... I definitely, you know, I was always coming from a place of love. I always went back because I believed him when he said it would never happen again. I believed that I really could be strong enough for the, the two of us. And it was a passing phase. But one thing I recognize, and I, I've alluded to this before, it's actually becoming more of my, my public speaking platform because I think it, it does resonate to a larger extent. Um, when somebody takes something from you, which is exactly what an abusive situation feels like, it's like a chunk has been ripped from you and you didn't give it over and you don't have it. And, and this other person does. And, and that's how they want to take control, right? I think on some level they understand that they are trying to take something from you and that will give them a power over you. Um, and it does. And if you don't recognize it early and it's hard to do that, the only person that can really fill you in your mind is that person. So when he comes back, and at least in, in my situation, this was the case, so I write from this vantage point. Um, when they come back and say, I, you know, I love you, I was wrong, you're the greatest, and, and they start building up that pedestal that they're going to put you on, will you feel whole again for a minute? You're right. That is true. You did, you did wrong. I, de- I deserve that apology. And so it starts to feel more situational. Now, even if it becomes behavioral, every situation, a larger chunk is taken. And then that person, even more so, feels like the only one that can fill you. And so it's this constant excavation of yourself in a way that you you hope they bring it back. But eventually you get to the point where you feel like you can't fill it yourself. Only that person can. Self-help groups can't. Doctors can't. Any external factor can't. That person deserves to know what they've done and you deserve to have them fill you. And for me, I was only able to heal when I, I saw it, at least in that you know visual sense and said, I'm wrong. I'm the only one who can fill this. I'm the only one who can break this cycle. And then you have to start taking steps to look inside and forgive yourself for allowing those things to happen. 
beautiful, beautifully said. What what was a turning point for you? It was a couple of things. I think seeing the damage it was doing with my family who didn't fully know, but there was a rift. I couldn't connect well. I was spiraling. I didn't feel like I could talk about it. And and over time, you know, there are friends that fell away because they either saw it or, or didn't but knew something was wrong and couldn't help. Um, some of it, I guess, maybe just cu- came from age. I, I really did just get so tired of feeling that way. I never had a death sentence. I never wanted to die or be put in a situation where I felt that way. And, and certainly a, a lot of, in my experience, um, my healing was precipitated by one situation becoming so extreme that I, I recognized very acutely that the next time might be the last. This wow. wasn't just about hiding bruises anymore. This wow. this this elevated, you know, very quickly. Um, so it was it was a mixture of those things. Um, and then again, just I think recognizing this feeling inside that I finally recognize as self-loathing for allowing all of those things to happen and just having to to try to flip the switch. It's like anything, though, you know. They say it takes six weeks to form a habit. And I'm a cliche. I love cliches. I have, I have, I have <laughs> phrases from books all over my wall. I have poetry because I, I, it's good. They're good reminders. And, every, you know, I just sort of started the practice of waking up in the morning saying, I forgive you. I love you. And it felt so empty. But I did it anyway because I had nothing to lose at that point. And then a couple of weeks into it, I actually woke up feeling like I loved myself a little bit more, you know. And I yeah. think sometimes it's just the little steps like that open you to something else. And then you start looking at life and seeing opportunities and seeing people you should be surrounding yourself. And it just it, it snowballs in a really lovely way. But you have to set up, at least for myself, I had to set up patterns that I adhered to that kept me focused on what really was true, which was, I love myself. I want to find myself. I want to be the kind of person that does good in the world and isn't tragic. I don't want to be a tragic character. Absolutely. It's so interesting how it's another cliche, fake it till you make it. Yes. But but there's a reason they exist. You have to. There is a reason. (laughs) And so many women, even women who have not endured abuse, they lack that self-love. Mm-hmm. And we know that you need to love yourself first. We hear it 10 times a day. It's on every meme on Facebook. And it's like, right. <laughs> it's still, you know, it's one thing to say it or to believe it rationally. But mm-hmm. when you start assertively making it a part of your life, you see your life through it. You mm-hmm. see the world through it. And that's that's really, really incredible. And now that's you're, true. I mean, I knowing you, I've only known you in this in this healthy place. And you're just radiant with, oh, gosh, with it. You. It's really true. Thank um, you so much. Tell us about your book. What what are you hoping to accomplish with the fall? Right. So if you go to my website, lvauthor.com, you'll you'll see um, some sort of repetition of this overarching theme that I really want this book to be a tool for change. Um, You know, I can't emphasize enough that I I wrote it to save myself. It was a completely selfish reason. And it it answered a question. And and then that the publishing of it was seeing a need and saying, if there's even something I can do that takes what I've seen to be a really insidious issue that I have gone through myself. I have now come to know other women through public speaking and and just, you know, conversation, um, that it's a problem, then I've fortunately made it out and had such a great support group along the way of, of family and friends that I'm in a position to affect change. And, and so the book, it is a fictionalized memoir, and it's about a young girl named Devin. Um, she falls in love at a young age. 
um, with the bad boy, you know, the classic bad boy, uh, Will, who focuses so much on her. Um, and, and, you know, it, puberty is such a difficult time that that kind of affection can bring two people together very quickly and very intensely. And and so in this, in this book, it does. And uh, the book, you know, I wanted to take some creative license with it because... There were many times when I looked back and I was thinking about my situation. I thought, God, yeah, that happened to me or with me or by me. But that wasn't me. That was that was somebody else. And again, part of the healing process was saying, no, that that was me. I am as much of an angel as I am a devil at times. I am as much of a of a, you know, weak person as I am a strong. I mean, there are so many facets to all of us. And. And so the, the, the subtitle of the book is Autobiography of an Alter Ego because it, it really opens towards the end of the book when you realize uh, she's, she's reached her, her critical mass and she doesn't remember much and she's in a, a, just this completely torn to shreds place. And in order to avoid a, an outcome she feels in, is inevitable, she says, I have to look back, I have to put the pieces together. And then the book goes into a, a third person Narrative that is punctuated by a, a first-person aside at the beginning of each chapter so that you're not only able to, to follow the story of Devin and how she falls so far so quickly, um, but also, you know, mirror that against what all of those turned her into. And so you start to see, okay, when you compartmentalize parts of your life so much, like hiding abuse or convincing yourself that that's not me and therefore not putting in the work to prevent yourself from making bad decisions again, well, you can very quickly feel like two different people. So I've been asked if the book is about mental disorder or schizophrenia. It's it's not. I, I, I believe, you know, many disorders and, and just, you know, human fallacies can be on a spectrum. I am in no way a, a um, you know, mental health uh, expert, nor would I claim to have any uh, real knowledge on that. What I do know, though, is is true compartmentalization of self, and it really does breed this feeling that sometimes you're living outside of your body, and when that is the norm more than feeling inside of your body, well, things can go badly very, very quickly. And so this is that journey for Devin as her soul really feels like it strikes. Sure. And you use music in a really creative way. I do. Yes. Thank you. Um, music for me defined my life. I, you know, a lot of people say that, especially when you're, you know, you're here in Hollywood and there's such wonderful uh, artistry everywhere and so many people that are um, so inclined in the arts. But you know, a, a song can bring me to tears when I was, you know, jumping for joy 30 seconds ago. And it's such a nostalgic factor for me. There's still some songs that I can't hear, not even because of that situation. There's a song my mom played when I graduated, and it turns me into a six-year-old crying girl if I ever hear it, you know. But yeah. we just, we, we I, so much of ourselves can be attached to music. And so I wanted to incorporate that because, uh, you know, Devin, I, I wrote from a, a similar place. She's definitely, a you know, an artist on the inside. And um, and so each chapter is actually named. It's, it's not numbered. It's named after um, a, a specific artist that I thought represented sort of what that feel and that sense. You know, what if you were playing their music in the background, it would complement that particular chapter. Sure, which is really effective, I think. And oh, I think you. your actual style of writing is so unique. It's written in a very 
uh, artistic and creative, almost poetic way. It's lyrical. I found well, it lyrical. thank you. That means so much. One of my favorite books ever was White Oleander by Janet Finch. Mm. And every time I, I speak about it, I say it's it's literally poetry and prose. Yeah. It's written with just such you know beautiful language and license, and 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 she's just so masterful with her words. So. Um, to hear you say that just makes my heart sore. Oh, you. good. I'm glad. You deserve that. And it's it's especially important, I think, in a book that is designed to make positive change because you never know when one line, one phrase, one song will strike somebody and become sort of a mantra mm-hmm. or flip the lights on for them and say, oh, my gosh, that's what was happening to me or that's what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. What would you say to women who are listening and either they're going through abuse right now or they are in that place of confusion afterward where they're like, why am I, why do I keep going back the way mm-hmm. that you were, were talking about? What, what, what would you say to them? What is one thing or, you know, that they, a step they can take today, something to, to further their empowerment and feel a little less alone? Yeah, gosh, you know, I, one of my favorites, again, cliche, mantra, <laughs> however you'd like to refer to it, but is uh, every day is a chance to change your life. And I think that is an extremely empowering phrase that if you really kind of sit in what that means, you recognize that each breath really is, it's a gift. None of this is promised. This whole journey, it can be so difficult and it can be so wonderful. And it's going to be both of those again. It's it's always going to ebb and it's going to flow. Um, And I think you can either look at your life as... You know, where you are right now is just basically a summation of where you've come from and you have all of these demons to fight. And we we all have that, you know, or you can look at it as what is positive and, and possible in the future and taking that positivity. You can harness what little it might be at any particular moment and saying, how can I turn this into something that not only helps me forgive myself, but helps me realize everything that I know and want to be. If your dreams don't scare you enough, you're not dreaming enough. (laughs) And you should never be scared to dream yourself in a better place because when you can see it, you can more easily achieve it. Um, So that's what I would say. You won't. If you can't see it, you really don't know what step to take. And, yeah. I, you know, it's very easy to embrace the dark. I was very in love with the dark side. The music I listened to, the people I surrounded myself with, um, misery loves company. It mm-hmm. absolutely does. And so, you know, it does, again, take a cognizant change in your thinking and, and, and having the guts to visualize something better for yourself. And then you can do it. But, but I really can't emphasize enough, you know, it... It comes back to forgiving yourself. And even though my book is, it can be quite dark. And, and the reviews, although they've been quite positive and I've been very, um, I felt very fortunate and, and I've been very flattered. But it, they're very honest, too, of, you know, you're not going to find a whole lot of um, moments where you're laughing and smiling reading the book. Hopefully it makes you contemplative. And there's moments, you know. But but the actual message when you are finished reading the book, at least I hope it continues to be this for my readers, is one of hope and one of change and one of ultimate forgiveness. Not even so much those who have trespassed against you. That is the natural progression of self-forgiveness. I read something the other day that I thought was very interesting. And it said, forgiveness um, prevents me from allowing myself the pain of what you've done to continue. I can no longer hold it over you 
because I don't have it anymore. And I thought, God, that's kind of interesting. It's like rolling it into a ball and throwing it, and you don't know where that ball landed. Are you going to keep looking for it? No, you're going to keep going. There's no no use for it. There's no use. No use. And I loved that analogy with the pieces of you. It's very similar. It's kind of, you know, because there's a time where you accept it, it was part of you, and now it's your past, and you just... It's true. I've, I, you know, I'm, I have no problem talking about my past because, in a way, I, I really did give it over to this fictional character. I took those sentiments from which, you know, I, I, I wrote, and then I just, I literally feel like it's, it's now out there to do something good for other people. Fantastic, and it, it certainly is. Uh, where's the best place to find your book? Well, you can certainly go to my website. There's a, a link um, under, oh gosh, I think it's under the About L section, but it's, it's in there, um, where you can actually order a signed copy. Um, and it is available on Amazon if you want. You can also go into a Barnes & Noble and um, order on print. And it has a beautiful cover. Actually, Elle and I met at a, a writing uh, festival. We were both mm-hmm. at a booth, and it's so funny because we both have blonde women on the covers of our books, and we never <laughs> see that. You know, I had it's to actually, true. which is a totally different topic, but I had to find my my original woman had brown hair, and I had to have an artist change that to find a strong. You know, it was very similar with mine. So. It was actually it was actually a wig, um, and uh, and yes, it was actually. If you go to dreamcatcher.com, um, was a girl, a fellow writer who was at that conference, Kendall Roderick, who is also an amazing uh, graphic designer. Uh, she did the cover, and I just fantastic, her. fantastic. Lovely. I hope everyone will go to Elle's website again. That's L the author, and L is E L L E L the author She's also on Facebook as L the author and Twitter at L the author. I'm everywhere. <laughs> Very easy, Robert. Thank I'm God so for easy that. To find. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, we'll probably be exploring this topic more in the future just because there's so much to say. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and review, and hop over to my website, augustmclaughlin.com, for show extras and a whole lot more. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.